And we're just asking the question, and I think it's uh, the all-important question, why think this is true? There are a lot of people who uh, are able to, they just sort of sense it's true, and uh, they're, you know, the, the reality of Christ is just there, and they don't really need much evidence. But I'm not like that, and I know another, a lot of other people aren't like that. I tend not to trust my emotions. I love having emotions, but I, I don't trust them as a guide to truth. And so we're looking at the question, can uh, reflective, intelligent, uh, reasonably critical people come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And what I want to do this morning is to take uh, the material that we've covered the last two weeks and apply it to the resurrection. Can a thinking person believe that Jesus really rose from the dead? Everything really hangs on that. In fact, by the disciples' own testimony, it was the resurrection more than anything else that uh, convinced them that he was, in fact, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He lived an extraordinary life. He'd done extraordinary miracles. He made extraordinary claims, and all that was very impressive. But we have every reason to believe that Jesus would have sort of just faded into a distant memory were it not for the resurrection. When, after being crucified, he, on that first Sunday morning, rose from the dead, and the tomb was empty, and they saw him, they experienced him, they interacted with him in a resurrected form for 40 days, that is what, more than anything else, uh, convinced these disciples against their most basic Jewish monotheistic assumptions in the first century convinced them that in this man, God himself was present on earth and that he had in fact died for our sins and conquered sin, death, and the grave. Now we've got five primary accounts of the resurrection. Paul and then the four Gospels. All of them are written between 30 and 60 or 20 and 60 years after the event. That is, by historical standards, very, very good. We've also got 11 other sources in the first century that allude to or mention the resurrection or that presuppose that it's true. That is very rare in history that you have that many sources. More often than not, we have to trust single sources uh, that we can't cross-check for our reading of history. For example, most of what we know about ancient uh, Judaism, at least in the first century, comes from one source a man named Josephus, who's writing up to 90 years after the events that he's recording. Much of what we know about Alexander the Great comes from one source, a historian named Arian, who, who writes four centuries after uh, Alexander the Great lived. Uh, most of what we know about the ancient Persian wars comes from one source, a historian named Herodotus writing 70 years after the event. Much of what we know about the early mi Middle Ages in Europe comes from one source, uh, St. Bede, writing up to 200 years after the event. So here in the resurrection, we've got five sources between 20 and 60 years, and I would argue they're all closer to 20 and 30 years after the event, uh, with 11 other uh, references to it. And that is, by historical standards, really exceptional. The earliest account we have of the resurrection is the one I want to focus on here this morning and is found in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Paul is writing to the Christians at Corinth, and uh, he's found out that in, in the congregations at Corinth, some people have begun to doubt the resurrection. And so he writes an account here to try to establish in their minds and hearts the reality of the resurrection. 
This document, there's not much disputation about when it's dated. It's between 53 and 55 A.D. 54 lands it right in the middle. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what Paul says. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Note there that he's reminding them of something they've already been taught. Uh, he, Paul started this congregation about three years earlier, so that means this resurrection account is actually to be dated on 50 or 51. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Paul here uses technical rabbinic language for the receiving and passing on of sacred tradition. To Jews, you never uh, tamper with sacred tradition. And so the likelihood that this ever got doctored up is very, very small. Not only that, but it shows that the, this material that Paul's giving here has already, in 51, attained the status of sacred tradition. He received this from the eyewitnesses, and we know that he met with them in Jerusalem between 36 and 37 A.D., roughly three or four years after the crucifixion took place. It could be up to five or six years, but still it's very close to the event. And here's what he received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. It's interesting that they use the Aramaic name for Peter there rather than his Greek name, which shows that the, this has an Aramaic-Palestinian origin here, which puts it very early. And then he appeared to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, or born late, uh, the term uh, could, could mean. I want to pray for this message. Could I get a few people around the auditorium to keep me covered in prayer? Some intercessors, a couple more. Thank you, I appreciate it. Father, there, there is no more important fact than the resurrection. And uh, I pray, Lord, that this morning all who are not thoroughly convinced that this is true, convinced enough to stake their life on it, I pray, Lord, that that would happen here in the next 25 minutes. Holy Spirit, land on us now. And give my words an authority that comes from you, not me. Help me to say it succinctly and clearly, but however it comes out, Lord, anointed and transform our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The question I want to ask very succinctly is this. How do you explain that? How do we explain that? Pretend like 1 Corinthians isn't in the Bible. We have this letter from the first century dated 54 AD. He's telling us that he and a large number of other people witnessed Jesus Christ raised from the dead. How do we explain that? There are really only four alternatives. The first being, you explain it by saying it really happened, therefore it's true, and therefore surrender your life to Jesus Christ. But if you're not going to accept that explanation, here are the other three ways that people have tried to explain it. It is, as we said several weeks ago, it could be a lie. Could this be a lie? Could Paul be making this up? Could Peter be making this up? Could all the early disciples have been making this up? I don't think so. In fact, I can't think of a more improbable thesis than that. Several problems with the lie explanation. First of all, 
Is it really conceivable that Paul, a monotheistic Jew, a former Pharisee, would make up a lie about this? How plausible is that? And that he would have other monotheistic, God-fearing, devout Jews also join in on the lie? How plausible is that? It's interesting, but a few verses after the passage that I read, Paul says this, starting with verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God. Pseudomartis is the Greek word that's used there. Uh, it, it can be translated bearing false witness against God. For, because we testified of God that he raised Christ. Paul here is really taking a solemn, devout oath before God that he's telling the truth. To a Jew to, uh, for a Jew to uh, bear false witness at all, let alone against God, was a damnable offense. And is it really plausible that here Paul, this, this devout Jew, would be making up a lie and basically swearing before God that he's telling the truth? I find that to be completely implausible. What's even more implausible is to think that he got a number of other uh, devout Jews to join with him in this. Where's the evidence that any of them have the character, the kind of malicious, hypocritical, uh, carnal character that would be, be able to pull this off? A second problem is this. What's their motive for doing this, as we saw two weeks ago? They had nothing to gain and everything to lose. Uh, it wasn't like they got rich off of this thing or benefited in any way. What would be their motive? There is no discernible motive other than their desire to tell the truth. Number three, where are the dissenters? If you have a conspiracy theory, when the going gets tough, somebody's going to crack. And these are people who were uh, tarred and set on fire and impaled on post and had their heads cut off and had to watch their children get fed to lions. Are you telling me that nobody under those circumstances cracked and said, hey, we made the whole thing up, it was a lie? And now consider the fact that you've got over 500 people, Paul says here, 500 people who are, are willing to lay down their life saying this thing is true. Paul says of these 500, most of them are still alive, though some have died. And the whole force of saying most of them are still alive is he's saying, he's saying, uh, you can check this out, you can go talk to them. Could a conspiracy theory involving over 500 people have survived that kind of persecution? I find that absolutely uh, impossible. The final thing, the fourth thing is, why do the accounts differ somewhat? If you read the four Gospels and read Paul, all the accounts are different in significant respects. It's possible to harmonize them, but it's not easy to harmonize them. Now, this is really standard for, uh, in history. I've read one historian who said, we have no example in all of history of a single event being told from different perspectives where the accounts are in 100% agreement. People tell stories from different angles. You get that with the Titanic, for example. Even though they're all eyewitnesses, they saw it from different angles and they remember things slightly different. The accounts are somewhat different. What I find interesting, though, is this. If they were making this up, they wouldn't be different. Uh, they, would, they wouldn't have these sort of apparent discrepancies. It would have all been smoothed over. So I really believe the lie hypothesis is, is as untenable as any historical hypothesis could be. Second thing is, could it be a legend? And we looked at this a little bit last week with regard to the Gospels as a whole, and now I want to apply it to the, to the resurrection. Could it be a legend? 
Maybe someone had a dream of Jesus uh, surviving death and told it to his mother, who told it to her friend, who told it to her boss, and the story became, sort of evolved into Jesus rising from the dead. This is, I think, slightly more plausible than the first hypothesis, uh, but not by much. Several problems with it. First, as we said last week, the Jews were inherently resistant to, resistant to any legends, especially a legend about a divine man. They were people of the book who went by the Old Testament, and they didn't believe the legendary stories that the pagans around them told. Uh, so you've got the wrong environment for the birthing and uh, expanding of a legend. Secondly, there's not nearly enough time for legendary development. Legends typically take quite a while to grow, to expand, especially a legend of this proportion. Uh, it took five centuries, as I said last week, for Buddha to go from being the wise teacher to being worshipped as a god, one, of, one god among very ma many others, among some of his followers. But with Jesus, we don't have five centuries. Arguably, we don't even have five years. Right from the get-go, they're preaching the resurrection. It uh, is difficult to explain that as being a legend. Third, legends almost always are birthed and grow in a culture to reconfirm fundamental aspects of that culture, fundamental beliefs, fundamental values. Uh, that's, one, that's one hypothesis of why legends are birthed in the first place. It, it, it provides kind of a securing for people. What's interesting about the Christian message that is centered on the resurrection, however, is that it in fundamental ways goes against the, 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 the culture. It goes against uh, first century monotheistic Jewish culture. I mean, for example, no one, was, no one was expecting an individual resurrection. Most believed that there'd be a general resurrection of all people at the end, but no one was expecting an individual resurrection, and here we've got an individual resurrection. Even beyond that, no one was expected this uh, Messiah to be crucified. In fact, that would be revolting to the ordinary Jew, because to be crucified is to die a cursed death, and yet the gospel story says Jesus was crucified. No one was expecting a Messiah who made divine claims for himself. Nothing could be more blasphemous to a first century monotheistic Jew than that a man would, would, would claim, whether directly or indirectly, that he is the representation of God himself and that he is to be worshipped. But that's exactly what the Christian message does. Legends almost always make heroes out of their founders. But if you read the Gospels, the, the founders of this faith come across as extraordinarily dull and quite cowardly. They look very human. They do not look at all legendary. Most interesting is that in this account, in the, in the four accounts of the resurrection, it's, it's women who are the first ones to find the tomb empty, and the men are hiding, scared. But in first century Jewish culture, women, the report of women was regarded to be as inherently unreliable. It was a sexist culture, and there'd be no motive whatsoever uh, for, a, for, for a legend to arise which put women at the center stage rather than men. For all those reasons, I think it's, it's uh, impossible to see this, to really adequately explain it as a legend. But the most decisive argument against it is this. We have to remember that it's the original witnesses who are, who are telling the story. The legends are always about what happened long, long ago, far, far away. No one quite knows where and no one quite knows when. But see, here are the people saying, I saw him. I, the tomb was empty. We witnessed him. We, 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 we uh, fellowshiped with him after the resurrection. That's not a legend. A legend isn't an eyewitness report. The only way that the report can be false is if it's intentionally false. And so at this point, the legendary hypothesis turns into the lying hypothesis, and we've already seen how implausible that one is. 
I submit to you that the resurrection cannot be adequately explained as a lie, and it can't be adequately explained as a legend. These people experienced something that they say was a resurrection from the dead, which leads to your only remaining alternative, and that is this. Could it be a hallucination? Could it be a hallucination? You know, people see things all the time. You got UFOs all over the place. You got Bigfoot. You got Loch Ness Monster. You know, people, people are weird. Our eyes uh, trick us sometimes. And so maybe it was that the disciples, uh, though they were absolutely so discouraged after Jesus died, they had some kind of vision, uh, a hallucination that they mis mistook to be the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And actually, this is the most common explanation these days among scholars who don't accept uh, the truthfulness of Christianity. So it really comes down to this. Could it be a hallucination? There are several problems with this explanation. For one thing, you've got too many people to explain away as a hallucination. Uh, hallucinations usually are individual matters, right? A, a person sees something. You have some examples uh, in, uh, of, of mass hysteria, of one-time events, where people see a face in the cloud or something of that sort. But are we really going to believe, can you really accept the plausibility of saying that... Uh, you have all the original disciples and all these original women who discovered the tomb empty and over 500 that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. And this occurs over a 40-day span of time. More than 500 people are interacting with Jesus Christ over a 40-day span of time. That's one heck of a hallucination. I mean, what were these people smoking? I mean, this, something was up here. I find that stretching credibility to, to the limit. I, 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 another thing, however, is this. This is not what anyone expected. Hallucinations generally uh, happen when you're expecting to see something, and there it is. Uh, but the disciples, it's very clear, were not expecting an individual resurrection. Uh, a fourth thing, however, is this. If they would have had a hallucination, they would have described it as a vision. You have a lot of reports of visions in the Bible. People have visions. It's something that happens in your head. They, they see something, and they describe that as a vision. But the, 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 the gospel accounts in Paul do not say that they had a vision of Jesus. Like, for example, it says they had a vision of, of Moses and Elijah uh, at one point. They, they saw something, but that was different than the resurrection. All of the authors in the New Testament describe what they experienced as a resurrection, not a vision. And for a Jew, you need to know that they had no concept of a disembodied resurrection. They had no concept of a spiritual resurrection. To, for them to say resurrection is to say the body has come out of the tomb, which is what they all say. Paul says he was buried and then he rose. That means he was unburied. He, he came out of the tomb. Um, and they describe him in, in a transformed state, but yet in a physical state. And it doesn't at all reconcile with the hallucination hypothesis. But the fifth argument, and probably the most decisive argument against the hallucina hallucination theory, is that... They, 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 they describe the tomb as being empty. Not only do, do they describe the tomb as being empty, they tell us whose tomb it was. And it happens to be a member of the Sanhedrin, which in first century Jewish culture was uh, uh, equivalent to our Supreme Court. Joseph of Arimathea, who offered up his tomb for Jesus to be buried in, would have been a household name. The hallucination hypothesis does nothing to explain that. The tomb was empty, uh, hallucination, hallucinations don't empty tombs. And so while the hallucination hypothesis is maybe slightly more credible than the legendary or lie hypothesis, 
I would want to wager my life, this one and the next, on the hope that it is true. But on top of that, there's many other considerations that reinforce the confidence that we're de dealing with the Gospels and with Paul, with uh, we're dealing with reliable eyewitness testimony. Let me just give one uh, segment of this evidence. One of the things that historians look for when they're assessing the reliability of an ancient document is does it have, as I mentioned last week, does it have irrelevant detail? Because eyewitness accounts usually include irrelevant detail. Does it have counterproductive detail? Uh, details that, that actually would, would have been left out if someone was making that up. If so, that's, that, that increases our confidence that in fact this is a historical uh, a piece of work. And does it have historically significant detail? A detail that helps anchor it in the time and place it says it is written. Those are the kind of criteria that historians typically look for in assessing the veracity of a historical account. Now, I want to take one of the resurrection accounts, and let's put it to this test. I want to read from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. And let me just read here, and I will ins I inserted an I whenever we have an irrelevant detail, a CP when we have a counterproductive detail, and an HS whenever we have a historically significant detail. Here's, here's how it reads. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, who cares? It's an irrelevant detail. But it's the kind of thing that a person uh, would, would, would remember if they're recounting an eyewitness testimony. Mary Magdalene, now that's a counterproductive detail. Because Mary is a woman, and there's no motive to put a woman at center stage in a first century Jewish document unless that's actually the way it happened. Uh, what's also interesting is that they include her last name, which is not typical, which means there must be something significant about her last name. And the only thing that uh, Magdala, which is where the Magdalene comes from, the only thing that was significant about it, so far as we know, is that it was a center of prostitution. And that's why Mary Magdalene had, uh, in later tradition, the, the reputation of being a prostitute. Whether that's true or not doesn't matter, but it is a counterproductive detail nonetheless. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now that's an irrelevant detail, uh, but an interesting one, because it's very clear that John is referring to himself. And I submit to you that what we have here is a sort of false modesty. He's too modest to actually mention his name, uh, but he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Which, by the way, fits the profile of John that we find in other passages in the Gospels. He was, for example, the one who thought he was so special, he should get, be able to sit on the right hand of Jesus when they, when they enter into the kingdom of God. John had a little bit of an ego problem, I submit to you, and it comes out in this text. But that helps anchor it historically. The one whom Jesus loved, more than the rest, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. The we is significant, because so far John has only mentioned one woman, and yet here she uses the first person plural. And why that's historically significant is that one of the major criticisms, or objections about the resurrection narratives, is that they have different accounts of which women went to the tomb. And the other three all have several women coming to the tomb, but John only has one, so people say, well, that's a contradiction. But very clearly here, the text presupposes that there were other women with Mary when she went to the tomb. It's just that John chooses to focus on one of them, Mary Magdalene. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, that's the one whom Jesus loved, outran Peter <laughs> and reached the tomb first. 
la 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 la. Does anyone care? He bent over. Now that's historically significant because the tomb of wealthy people, not commoners, but the tombs of wealthy people, and Joseph of Arimathea being a member of the Sanhedrin would have been very wealthy. They were, they were built close to the ground because you can make them more secure. So the fact that he had to bend over to go into the tomb is, is historically significant. It anchors it in the first century and it, it corroborates other details. He looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. That's a irrelevant detail. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. That's historically significant because it fits the profile of Peter. Peter always acted first, thought later. He was not a very cautious guy. Boom, he just bulldozes right in there. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. That's an interesting piece of detail. Even more interesting is this. The cloth was, the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. So he's going to tell us where the clothing was inside the tomb. That's an irrelevant detail, the kind of thing an eyewitness would record. It's also somewhat counterproductive because it leaves us with this question. What the heck was Jesus wearing when he came out of the tomb? <laughs> legends, ne legends always uh, you know, nicely clean up uh, these kind of details. They don't raise questions, but historical accounts often do. Uh, you know, it makes me, I don't know what, what resurrected bodies look like, but it seemed like Jesus was going around in the nude. I, it, okay. <laughs> Finally, the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, who had reached the tomb first. Get over it, John. <laughs> it's like there's, there's not a lot of confusion about this, John. He also went inside, and he saw and believed, implying that Peter didn't see and believe. Uh, okay, here's the thing. It's another irrelevant detail. I believe that the Lord left John's ego into this text for a reason. And it's because it is so human. This is exactly the kind of thing that historians look for when they're assessing the historical validity of any text. And if ever you have reasons to think that an ancient text is historically reliable, that it contains eyewitness testimony, this text does that. And given the fact that all the other uh, uh, alternative explanations for the resurrection are so lame... I submit to you that if you have any reasons for thinking that anything in history ever happened, you have reasons for thinking that, in fact, that the, the resurrection was true. If you're not going to believe the gospel accounts and Paul, despite the evidence of their reliability, then with, with integrity, you ought to come to the conclusion that you can't believe anything about history. But you're not going to do that. Uh, that would be an utterly irrational move. So out of consistency... You ought to accept that these accounts, in fact, as difficult as it may be for you to believe that a man rose from the dead, we have all the reasons in the world to think that in this case, that's exactly what happened. And there's one final consideration I'm going to leave you with. It's not a historical consideration. It's more of a personal consideration. And it's just this. The resurrection fits. For a lot of people, this is enough in and of itself uh, to, to make it credible. But it fits. There's something about the, the story of God becoming a human being in a, in a manger and then going to the cross and interceding for us and dying for our sins and rising from the dead to gain victory over all that opposes God. It rings true in the human heart. Why is it that, if we're honest with ourselves, we all find life uh, to be, at least in significant respects, unsatisfactory? Uh, why, why does death seem so unnatural? 
Why is it that life feels so empty and often feels meaningless and we often feel alienated? We all have those moments. Why do we long for our life to have a purpose? If this life is all there is, then it is one absurd, irrational, amoral, meaningless, pointless uh, endeavor. And we long for more. How do you explain that? How do you explain that longing that is in our heart? Why do we continue to have this optimism that, that good should overcome evil? When after all these thousands and thousands of years that humans have existed, it doesn't even look like we're making much progress on that one. And yet we keep on believing that good should overcome evil. But if this life is all there is, then what even is good and evil? Where do we even get those concepts from? If the resurrection is true, we have an explanation for why it is that we have longings, each one of us, we have longings that outrun this world. Because we're created for, we're in fact created by a God who's wired us to long for more than this world. We long for a relationship with him. And we believe that this life, as it is now, this short uh, five to 70 years or however long you live, uh, we're wired to believe that, that this can't be all. And I submit to you the best clue we've got for what else there is, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if this account is true and we have every reason to believe it is true, it tells us that we're just getting warmed up in this world. This is the prelude to the real show. This is the gestation period. And your future will either be incomparably better than your present or it could be incomparably worse than your present. And what hangs in the balance here is this. Are you related to the creator of the universe through the person of Jesus Christ? Uh, do, do you know him? Have you surrendered your life to him? Or are you going your own way, doing your own thing, being Lord of your own life, calling your own shots? All the evidence that I've put forth for, for believing the resurrection is there to encourage you, rather implore you, to submit your life to Jesus Christ. It takes faith to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he's the son of God. But it takes faith not to believe that. Either way, you're going to wager your life, this one, and if we're right, the next one, on the hope that the lie hypothesis or the legendary hypothesis or the hallucination hypothesis is true. But there's absolutely no reason to think that they are true. And there's tons of reason to think that the Gospels and Paul are true. So the question I put before you right now, in fact, I want to ask all disciples of Jesus Christ to close your eyes right now and start praying is will you surrender your life to him? I want to give you a chance to do that. We're going to take one minute to do this. This is not about praying a magical prayer or getting any kind of fire insurance. It's not about just believing in a hypothesis. What the Lord wants is you, all of you, because that is life itself. The promise of the, the scripture is that if you'll surrender your life to him, he'll come in and change you and form you for a, an eternal Fellowship with him that is all that human beings were ever created to, to, to enjoy, of love, joy, and peace. If you're here this morning and you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, maybe you did at one point and, and, and you've lapsed, or maybe you never have, but if you really mean it and want to pray it as a pledge of your life, raise your hand very quickly. And we're just going to pray, pray with you. Back there, I see a number of hands. Wonderful. Up here, wonderful. Over to my left. Just raise your hand really quickly, and, and we're just going to pray for you. In the back there, wonderful. God, the angels are rejoicing here, you guys, over on the side. Anybody else? Just raise your hand. Praise God. Praise God. This is why God created you. He wants a relationship with you. 
It's an awesome decision. It's more awesome than saying, I do, when you get married. You're saying, I, I want to surrender my life to Christ. You may not have a clear idea of what that ac actually means, but who, who, none of us had a clear idea when we said, I do, when we got married either. <laughs> Yet you're growing this thing. What matters is right now the intention of your heart. Anybody else? Anybody else? Holy Spirit, be moving. Up, up here, I see that little hand. That's wonderful. Pray this as a pledge. This isn't magic. It's just a pledge. But it begins the relationship. And we're all going to pray it with you because we're in this together. So pray this prayer uh, after me. Heavenly Father, I do believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sin. And I do believe that he rose from the dead and reigns on high. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive me, to live within me, to transform me, and to help me live for you the rest of my life, starting right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. Welcome to the kingdom. Okay, now, listen. Uh, those of you who prayed that prayer, whether I saw your hand or not, I want you now to take the first action step of your pledge. Because this isn't magical religion. This is reality. Uh, we have a Bible and a CD and some other information we want to give you. Uh, just to help you get started. Even if you have, already have a Bible, you need this information. Uh, this is a serious step you just took, if you mean it. Take out two minutes, fight the crowd, come up here and to my right and your left. Uh, we have um, this information we want to give you. It's free, no strings attached. We encourage you to do that. Uh, if the prayer team would come forward here, they'll stand in front of the steps. And if you have any need whatsoever that you would like to have prayed for, they'd be happy to spend some time praying with you. God bless you guys. Go out, have a happy Easter. Christ is risen. He's risen. Amen.